This episode is brought to you by Loading Bar. Based in three locations, Stoke Newington and Peckham in London and Brighton on the South Coast, Loading offers video game aficionados somewhere to drink, relax and play. Visitors can expect a welcoming space full of free-to-play games, the latest consoles, fresh ground coffee, signature cocktails and video game-themed live events. Visit loading.bar for opening times and more information. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is a New York Times best-selling author and journalist. After graduating from NYU with a degree in writing, he works as a freelance journalist covering video games for Wired Magazine, Joystick, Edge, Paste and others. In 2012, he joined the staff of Kotaku, the video game website run at the time by Gorka. There, he made a name for himself as a tenacious reporter, particularly with his empathetic coverage of crunch culture, the term given to the egregious overtime working practices that still remain prevalent across the games industry today. This work led to my guest 2017 bestseller Blood, Sweat and Pixels, and in 2021, the follow-up Press Reset, ruin and recovery in the video game industry. For the past three years, my guest has continued to cover video games and the people who make them for Bloomberg. I've always been in favour of drastic transparency, he once said. Radical transparency. 
Welcome, Jason Schreier. Thank you, Simon. It's great to be here. Are we going to practice some radical transparency right now? Or are we going <laughs> to get into my, my five games? It's like vulnerable uh, city over here being radically transparent about my f- perfect console. Well, I mean, I was going to ask you, so radical transparency isn't something that we are used to in the games industry much, I would say, which is known for uh, its secrets and lifetime NDAs for prevent staff from ever talking to a journalist. And, uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, how, how do you, in your work, go about encouraging that kind of openness amid such hostile conditions? It's interesting. Um, I uh, always liked what our boss at Gawker Media, Nick Denton, the owner of Gawker for a long time and founder of Gawker, I always liked his way of describing our company's mission statement, which kind of evolved over, the to- over time and it was a little less savory back in the day. But when I was there... The, the the idea was tell the story that uh, behind the story the story that you're sharing with your friends at the bar rather than what you're just you're actually printing like tell the story that you would actually tell people that you would call up your mom and talk about with her that you would tell your buddy a, a, about tell that story in the video game world it might be like there's one story that's being told at the E3 press conferences and then another story that's being told at the JW Marriott later that night, right? So I am very much in favor of, hey, I want to go out there and tell the story that's being told at the JW Marriott. That's not to say that like radical transparency may, it might might be a misnomer because like uh, people should have secrets and deserve to have secrets and like not everything needs to be exposed to the world, especially if it doesn't have some sort of public interest attached if it's not newsworthy in some way. That said, um, at least when I started, and I think that's changed a little bit, there was a little bit too much of the like, okay, games P- games press is kind of the PR marketing extension <laughs> of the industry and uh, everything else is, is just going to get kept under wraps. And, and that's not to say there wasn't perfectly fine and excellent journalism being done Way before I started, I mean, people like uh, yourself and your fellow uh, your fellow podcast guests, Tom Tom Bissell and Lee Alexander, and a lot of the other people that that I kind of came up reading and enjoying uh, were doing a lot of great work back then too. But there was so much, so much of it. It was just like, hey, we're going to print what the what the game companies want us to print, and uh, I think that's changed uh, quite a bit over the past few years, fortunately. But yeah, that's that's generally what I mean when I talk about transparency. How do you so like some of the reason that those conversations stay at the bar at the JW Marriott is because if they were made public, they could get the person in lots of trouble, right? At work. Oh. What kind of responsibility do you feel you have when a source comes and tells you something and you think, Well, this is great. Millions of people would want to read this, but it could ruin your life. That is the number one reason that I don't publish stories. And I have a massive, massive list of stories or or parts of stories, like anecdotes within stories, that I've never published because the people involved needed to stay anonymous to keep their careers, to keep their jobs, and publishing them would be too risky for them. I always tell potential sources, the protecting you is my number one priority. Publishing details from your story is like number two to that. I will always, always, 100% of the time, sit on something if it could potentially burn a source. And man, there's some, if only, God, yeah, you must you must be in the same boat. Like there's so many stories, especially there was one at the very beginning of this year, I spent like two or three work weeks just like working and working on this this story that was pretty explosive and it just had to die because it was going to, 
it was going to get someone in more trouble than they needed to be, even though that person was like willing to take the risk. There were all sorts of complications involved and I really wanted to publish the story, but it just couldn't happen. And so that happens all the time. A lot of times when people are, are coming to me or have a story that needs to be told, it's because something is happening uh, on a systemic level. It's <laughs> happening across their company or it's happening across their um, organization or whatever it is. Uh, and so usually there's a way into that that doesn't involve burning someone who wants to be anonymous. And a lot of the times people do want to stay anonymous. So um, if someone comes to me and says, hey, there's a culture of sexual harassment at our game company, then there are probably a hundred other people I could find and talk to and and kind of corroborate stuff and get stories and get anecdotes and such. So there are many ways to be able to do this sort of reporting without uh, without burning people. It's just that as you go, you have to like be extra judicious and like, yeah, it's one of those things where like if you really just burn a source once, you your career is essentially over. Like you, who's going to want to speak to you again if you have done that to someone intentionally or like even even unintentionally if you've done it to someone in a way that can like destroy their career, yeah. who's going to want to speak to you again? And yeah, I mean, I've been fortunate and and obviously judicious about this stuff in that I I can not think of many times when like someone has really gotten in serious trouble. As a result of stories I've done, um, except for like situations, the only times when people have have gotten in some sort of trouble is when it was like OPSEC issues. Like I always have to warn people as far in advance as possible, like do not use company equipment to talk to me. Do not use your work computer or work phone to call me or anything like that. Those are those are the situations where you have to be mm -hmm. extra careful. I guess, uh, you know, one other thing that's related to this is. Sometimes you'll get people coming to you who I guess are whistleblowers and that can be very useful for journalists um, someone who you know has a good reason that they want to expose some sort of injustice or abuse but there are also sort of risks attached to that because you don't always know the person's motivation maybe they're disgruntled maybe they had a fight with their boss and you know they no longer work at the company they want to just take that out and the risk is that that can skew the narrative away from uh, I'm wary of using the word the truth because that's a very complicated thing with companies with dozens of people. You know, there's many different truths, right? But how do you how do you protect against being used, I suppose, in that way or having the story skewed to suit someone's hidden agenda? You know, it's funny in my years of doing this, and I'm curious if you've experienced the same in my years of doing this, that the, the thing that I found most common is not people being disgruntled and like, making things up or exaggerating things because they're disgruntled. It's it's people saying things as if they know them firsthand when really they heard them right. secondhand. <laughs> yeah. So like someone might say, oh, yeah, the boss got fired because of this. But really, they just heard that from another coworker and they're just conveying it to me that way. That's always the part that that's like artists. But to answer your question, I mean, the 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 kind of foolproof or at least relatively foolproof way to do that is to corroborate everything and never publish anything unless you've heard it from multiple people, ideally three people plus, um, but worst worst case, two people. I try to be pretty strict about not letting, um, not giving people anonymity to say subjective things. And I know it's, it's been a bugbear of mine. It always really bugs me when I see an, a blind quote in some story that is just like, attributing qualities to a person's character like saying this this guy is is a, a jerk who only thinks about himself or who didn't make an impact on or, or whatever it is i don't think anonymity should be used that way i think anonymity should be used to to say truthful statements about what happened things that took place so like instead of hey this guy was a jerk to us all use those anonymous sources to illustrate 
the anecdote about how that guy yelled at everybody in a meeting and told and, and made some people, I don't know, wash his car if they wanted to get promoted. Because it, it's hard. Let's say you, you want to capture a meeting, right, in your storytelling. You can't really do that without getting a few different people illustrating the details of the meeting. And some of them might have different memories about exactly what happened. But generally, people will be able to confirm like, oh, yeah, this is the gist of what happened. Right. And so that's what you want to get at. And uh, even no matter how disgruntled or like prone to exaggeration someone is, if they are able to describe something and then a second person will describe that similar sort of thing to you, then you you have your story there as opposed to person A coming to you anonymously and saying, hey, this guy's a big jerk. I never want to work with him again, which is not going to do much yeah. for you. So. Those are those are the corroboration and kind of focusing on the tangible events that happened rather than subjective characteristics or characterizations of people, I think, is the 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 way that I generally go about it. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. The, the, the sort of show don't tell is the mm-hmm. you know, that's a basic storytelling tenet, but it's useful in what you're saying there as well with anonymous quotes, you know. Yeah, it's funny you say that because like I've been Working on this new book, I actually just got off book leave. I've spent the past few months working on this thing. And uh, show but tell, I find to be a really interesting sort of um, mantra in book writing, because a lot of people do that through recreating scenes and recreating dialogue, which is something I don't really like to do in my books. Um, So usually the quotes, most of the quotes in my books are like people said this directly to me and it's kind of journalistic style rather than dialogue recreation. And so I found that like, oh, man, I'm writing these pages and pages and it's like all telling because of that, like because it it feels like that way. So I have to go through and give it a I'm planning on giving the whole book a a show don't tell pass to try to uh, uh, find find some details or some right. some color I can add to make it not feel that way. So uh, it's always always useful to to uh, think about journalism that way too. I agree. We we are going to talk about some games in a minute. I've just got I've I've got loads. Do of, we have to? I've got loads we, of questions really I want to ask you. But let, let's start with this one because you or let's just finish this section with this one because you mentioned about public interest there when you were first talking. You know when you work as a journalist in the games industry for any amount of time and you build up a network of sources, you find out about games that are being made long before that information is made public. You might hear about someone's moving on, a high profile departure from a company before that's made public. How do you decide whether or not to publish a story like that, which you know would be very widely read and that your bosses at your outlet would probably be very pleased with from a traffic point of view, but that doesn't necessarily meet any sort of threshold of public interest. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky to have always worked for news organizations where I could bounce this around off other people because for me, it's always a case-by-case basis and I always like to talk it through with like an editor and be like, hey, does this hit our bar of newsworthiness? And the answer is a little bit different at Bloomberg where we're a more mainstream financial news organization than it was at Kotaku where we're gamer centric game game focus that said I always think that like when it comes to a product announcement specifically I think there has to be some sort of news value attached that isn't just hey this thing is happening um and and this has long been my philosophy on these things I mean there's always been usually most of the times when I've reported on a game that's unannounced and reported that it was in development most I don't mean all the time, but most of the time there's been some sort of like grander news value attached. Um, for example, there was um, 
there was uh, an announcement a few years ago where Bethesda like started teasing this Fallout game and everybody thought it was going to be a big single player Fallout game. And then I reported, no, actually, this is multiplayer Fallout game <laughs> kind of survival survival game-ish and uh that's of course what it turned out to be but at the time it was it was like a, a game leak or whatever you want to call it but i think there was a broader news value in that bethesda was teasing this thing and rather than play into their marketing i thought it would be helpful to inform readers like hey no this is what this thing actually is so that that's the type of thing that i generally look for when I'm deciding whether or not to report on some piece of info that isn't announced. I mean, there's certainly a, kind of a, a category of journalists um, that would believe in, like I mentioned before, radical transparency in the sense that like anything you hear should be shared. And I have sympathies with, with that approach as well. Um, but it's not it's not one that I have typically took. Usually I, I like to take the more kind of like, hey, this needs to serve some sort of public value beyond this and and that's also the case in, even with more i don't know with more sensitive stories or like like if someone comes to me about some sort of harassment issues say like if someone says hey my boss is harassing me or something like that um you also have to assess the public value because not all like that's not going to be a story that needs to be in the public eye some of the time a lot of the time i mean unless there's Unless you can show that it's systemic or unless the person is really in a position of power where they're very high profile or well known or something like that, it's hard to really just be like, hey, this mid-level manager who like is is like somewhere smack in the middle of the, the corporate hierarchy here at this massive company is like a bad offender. Like that's the type of thing that maybe like it would be if in an ideal world, HR would be able to deal with that. But like even if HR is not dealing with them, the company is protecting this person. It's hard to isolate that as a story on its own unless you can go and be like, oh, actually, this is happening throughout the company. There's a stomach issue here. So, yeah, in general, I think you need to really kind of pinpoint what is the news value of this story? What is the public interest? Like, is this in the public interest? And can you show that? And and there's no easy way to define that. A lot of it is instinct, is deciding things on a case-by-case basis, is talking with editors and trusted colleagues, and uh, it can be tricky work. And I don't know if there's like ever really right answers. Sometimes there are stories that are borderline and you just have to make a call and and hope that you're you're making a good call. But but I, I, I think that's generally the calculus that goes into it. Good stuff. Right, Jason. So um, the premise of the podcast, I've asked you to pick the five video games you'd like to install in your perfect consult. Tell me about your first one from 1994. All right, let's do it. Okay, my first game is Final Fantasy VI. Thank you. 
music cue opportunity there. <laughs> pro, pro pro right here. Yeah. Um, so yes, Final Fantasy VI. Um, I knew I had to have a Final Fantasy game in here. I was really really weighing between weighing over this or Final Fantasy Tactics, but I also wanted to go with six because that game was so formative to me as a child. It was really the first game where, or, or certainly one of the first games where I was like, holy crap, like this is what games can do. And a lot of it was the music, maybe like 70% of it was the music, but also the characters and the, the way it looked and the, the little expressions that all the all the different 16-bit pixel pixelized little dudes would do. First Final Fantasy game where the characters had the same sprites in combat as they did right. in the field, which is a cool thing, but also just like the way they would like like you would see Edgar, the the um, King of Figaro, stick his finger up in the air and do like a little little animated finger wag, or the way you'd see these characters just kind of like jump in place and do these hilarious little Saturday morning cartoon <laughs> uh, animated effects every time like uh, a pit would fall under them or something like that. It was just very, very special to me growing up. Was this your first Final Fantasy? No, my first was the first game. So really? I always wow. I played them since the very beginning. Yeah. Well, the first game, I mean, <laughs> it was so difficult to play as like I was, what, four or five, something like that. It was so tough that uh, I could only get to the Marsh Cave, which is one of the first hard dungeons in the game and then I would just die over and over again so I really I like would read through the manual um I had this big like it came back then the the regular Nintendo boxes would come with all of these uh accoutrements including like a big map and like a manual that took you through the whole game and all that sort of stuff so I would like uh read all that stuff and get into the game more that way than actually play and then Final Fantasy 4 which was then 2 yeah, we should say only yeah only three of the games came out yes, in the US yes, today. Yes, yes. So what, between one and six, which came out in Japan, a little confusing, but yeah, <laughs> super confusing. Um, so I'll just refer to them by their proper names. So Final Fantasy IV, that was my next one, and that one really was like, wow, like this this game can like teach me how to read, and like I can learn storytelling through this and stuff like that. And but then six, really three at the time, six now uh, really just blew me away with the way that it was just this complete package of like cinematics and like um, cutscenes and story and all this incredible stuff. And then uh, I'll never forget like getting to the floating continent and then uh, uh, the world getting destroyed and the year like cutting a year in the future. Suddenly, yeah, spoilers. And suddenly you have to go and, and essentially becomes a different game where you have to get your gang back together and uh, uh, and take on Kafka. So yeah. It- yeah, because we should say it's, uh, it's an ounce. It's unusual, isn't it? Because it's an ensemble cast and you switch mm-hmm. your point of view between this group of characters, all of whom are really well written. You know, considering this was 94, a very early video game, but it's so well told and really holds up today. And yeah, like you say, you're switching between these characters and it's a, it's a, gr- it's a little gang, isn't it? Yes, yes. All the characters having, each of them having their own combat abilities in addition to their own personalities. Yeah, the ensemble was really special um there were hidden characters there were hidden side quests and things to do it was really just a, an incredibly well done package and i probably i played through that game probably 20 times over, wow. over the course of my life it's really really a special game um and i really i should i should say i said before that music is 70 percent of it i think people people who might not people who are younger people who might not have grown up playing like the sort of turn-based slower paced games like this one jrpgs probably don't appreciate how much the music played a part in that because 
back then, it's not like you could go on YouTube while you were playing and like listen to soundtracks or anything like that. Like when I was playing, I was like, oh man, I'm so excited. Now I get to hear this theme, which I can only hear in this game. Right. So that was a huge part of it too. That is not an experience that can be replicated today. Yeah. Ah, so interesting. So yeah, you mentioned having a having an NES there when you were a bit younger. Tell me, where did you grow up and was that your first console? Yeah, the NES was my first console. My parents, um, so I was born in Manhattan. I've been in New York my, pretty much my whole life. Oh, you were on the island itself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we lived in Queens and then we moved to the suburbs when I was like five or six. Okay. But my parents were actually big um, into like tech stuff. My dad was an engineer and my mom worked in, in various forms of like actually digital entertainment back then for kids and stuff. So they were they were into games. They had an, an NES before I even did just because they were interested in like the the new hardware and stuff and they didn't really play games and they just gave it to me and I wound up playing it but yeah so I would always so uh, wait what, what was your mom doing what, when you say digital entertainment yeah I mean so she I don't want to get too too specific but she essentially worked for a company not a game company but like a company that was like partnering with game companies and back then um, and she since she's like long she left that world like 25 years ago long before I even started my career but like she would go to E3 in no like way. the late 90s and come <laughs> back telling me and I would be like oh man I want to go someday I would be so jealous of her completely independent like this is totally unrelated to my actual career because sure. she was so out of it before like before I even went to high school she was like in a different uh, different field so so yeah but she would like wind up bringing home just like stacks of of free games so uh, I would get like all these computer games she would be like hey I just got this game like Monkey Island you should check this out and like we would play Zork together and stuff like that so yeah I was just immersed in games mm. like since I was a kid even though I never I never really thought of it as like a career like I always knew Growing up, I wanted to be a writer, and that was my first and foremost goal. And then later, it turned into being a journalist. Like, games had nothing to do with what I wanted to do. It was just like a cool hobby. And then, Where did that come from, then? The the instincts of become a writer and then a journalist, where were you getting that from? I, I don't know. Something about storytelling just always appealed to me. I think it was because of games like Final Fantasy VI that just made me want to be a storyteller, specifically. And then when I got into high school, I got more into journalism and the thrill of, like, being in the high school newspaper and and watching it get printed out to everybody and like walking through the halls and seeing people reading a big uh, like a big newspaper that has your byline in it and being like oh man like could they be reading my article right now I'm sure I'm sure you've had a similar experience at some point or another I feel like all journalists have had that that thrill that endorphin rush of being like oh my god someone's reading something I wrote right yes it's very common across people in our in our crazy little beat. But yeah, that that was it. And then from there, I just like wound up, I wound up um, pursuing like with a fleeting interest in film writing um, in college and never really thought I was going to do anything with games until I just kind of fell into it, which to give you the super short stories, basically I was um, after college, I started doing some random freelancing for like local news outlets and stuff back at my parents' place, like where, where I grew up. And wound up in this, here's my apocryphal origin story, I wound up sitting in this uh, zoning board meeting, this local government board meeting, <laughs> where I'm sitting in the crowd and I'm reporting on this thing and they're arguing over whether a fence is allowed to be 25 feet or 30 feet. And I'm just like, kill me now. Like, I can uh-huh. never, I'm not going to do this. I need to find something more interesting to write about. And then kind of fell into like, hey, maybe I should try writing about video games. I wonder what that would be like. <laughs> yeah. 
Now they will debate, is this 30 frames per second or 60? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> At least that's relevant to more people than this this particular debate was. But yes, that is the, the sort of... <laughs> Just oh man, yeah, jaw clenching. Okay, let's uh, let's come to your second game then, uh, Jason. Tell us about this one. My second game is Baldur's Gate Two. So Baldur's Gate 2 is a special place in my heart, and this is kind of an interesting choice because obviously Baldur's Gate 3 has just come out. It's blowing people's minds, including mine, but it's too recent for me to really definitively be like, yes, this is one of my special five games that I have to include on here. So uh, let me say Baldur's Gate 2 for now with the possibility that Baldur's Gate 3 comes in and uh, and replaces it. And this is really, this is kind of the, the stand-in, this is the, the exemplar for all of the dense, meaty computer RPGs of that era of the late 90s and early 2000s. I have these fond memories of like getting Baldur's Gate 1, the first one a few, a few years earlier from Bioware, Bioware's breakout game, and uh, it coming with the sleeve of six CDs and me being like, holy crap, like this game has six CDs, like it's gotta <laughs> be amazing. Oh my God, six CDs. Uh, <laughs> so, so that was fun. And then Baldur's Gate 2 really just like took that formula and perfected it. It was such a dense game with so many different secrets and side quests and characters and dialogue and all of it incredibly well crafted and well written and well well constructed. And you could just play through it so many times, just having totally different experiences <clears throat> every time. And um, compared to games like Baldur's Gate 3 or other games of today, the the level of choices weren't quite as vast. There weren't quite as many possibilities, but um, but there were a lot. Like you could play through the game as a good character or as an evil character and have pretty different experiences either way. I mean, one of the biggest choices of the game early on when you got to the second chapter was, um, or the third chapter was, do you want to side with uh, the Thieves Guild or do you want to side with the Vampires and the Thieves Guild was the good choice and the Vampires was the bad choice and if you went with the Vampires some party members would get mad at you and leave <laughs> and if you went with the Thieves Guild certain things would happen in, in, in other ways and there were all sorts of choices like that both big and small throughout the game that always just really impressed me um, but really it was just that feeling of like wow I'm going to spend hundreds of hours in this thing decking out my characters hunting for magical gear and killing dragons and it was just a, a, a very special game, especially when you are a teenager and you have nothing but time on your hands and you can spend an entire Saturday just just zipping through this game because you don't have children who you have to you have to watch and entertain all day. So uh, definitely some nostalgia attached to that. Yeah. But uh, I did revisit it a few years ago and found that it it aged extremely well. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, so maybe Baldur's Gate 3 will will take its spot on this list if you ask me again in a year or so. But I do, I want to give it a little bit of distance before we, we get to that point. Yeah, right. Fair enough. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's return to that scene. So you're in this, um, you're listening to zoning laws happening and you're like, I don't want to do this. And then you made the decision to start covering video games as a freelancer. Um, how did that happen? What was your first commission? My first commission was at Paste Magazine from Jason Killingsworth. Oh, yeah. Who assigned me to write a review of, I think it was Cave Story maybe for the Wii, uh, something like that. Maybe it was something else. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was but it was definitely for Pace. Then I got paid $50 and I was thrilled. I was like, wow, my first money writing about games. I got very excited about that. I was very much one of the treats that I think has, has served me well in life was that I was very persistent and stubborn and like I didn't really care if someone said no. I would just keep asking like, hey, can I pitch you this thing? Can I pitch you this thing? Can I write about this thing? And that that helps. But the other thing, and this is the most important thing, and I always, whenever people talk about like skill versus luck, I'm always like, man, you, you luck plays such a role, such an important role, is that I found this gig writing for, well, not writing. I found this gig at this website called Patch, which was, I think it's still around, but back then it was, it was much bigger. And it was this organization that was trying to do local journalism all across the U.S. And so every state, every town, whatever, had a patch. And what they had was this gig copy editing their retail listings because part of their whole thing was we want to have these retail listings and like advertise through that, some nonsense like that. And we need copy editors to to turn these submissions into like stuff that you can actually read. And I had to do X number, I don't remember the exact number, per week. And in exchange, I would be paid $500 a week for that. And I found that I was able to knock these all out in five hours. Uh, like watching football on a Sunday, I could just knock them all out on my computer and get paid $500 a week for this. And that was like the luckiest break I ever had in my life because I could pay the rent with this money and not have to worry. And then I could pursue like freelance that I actually cared about during the rest of the time. If not for that, I don't know, I, I would not have been able to, <laughs> like I, I probably, maybe I would have found some other kind of like day job to pay the bills, but it's hard to imagine what I would have done to avoid <laughs> not to avoid being delinquent to my landlord like during that period if I didn't have this super lucky role that I was incredibly fortunate to get that made it possible for me to be like building up this portfolio of clips and pitching to editors and eventually getting my first break, which was at uh, Wired um, with Chris Kohler, who hired me as kind of like a permalancer gig, um, which was my first real foot in the door to be able to like go out and, and write regularly and break news and call up sources, et cetera, and learn a lot from him and so on and so on. And yeah, without that one one gig, I don't know what yeah. I would have done, which... That's really- it's really help, helpful of you to be honest and say that that's what supported you because I think anyone who has ever tried to be just a pure freelance games journalism 
you can't really make enough money to, to live on that. Same with, of course, music journalism and film journalism, I think, as well. It's fair to say. So everyone needs a side thing. I think if you're going to make that, you'll beat uh, certainly as a when you're starting out as a freelancer. Yeah, 100%. And the wages, I mean... I see wages these days that like are the same, if not worse, than the wages I was getting 15 years ago. And that alone is so sad and pathetic and just like shows you how unsustainable things are yeah. today. It's really, yeah, it's it's a bummer and, and totally. And I think that like when people ask me like skill versus luck, like what do you think is 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 the the solution here? I, I guess people don't ask that directly. But in general, when people ask me for advice, on their career and getting into journalism. And so he's like, you have to have the skill and you have to be willing to put in the work, most importantly, for when the luck arrives, because there has to be some sort of lucky break and and everybody will get a, a, a chance or two over the course of their lives. But like, so you, you have to put the work into your position to seize that lucky break, but you do have to have that lucky break and like recognize it. And if you're unfortunate enough to not be able to have that, then you might not be able to pursue your dream career or whatever it is. But, um, yeah, I mean, even the most successful people in this, as in any field, have either been lucky or been helped by other people, really both. Like everybody, everybody who's worked in, in any career who's found success, it's always a mix of like their own merit and other people helping them out. And yeah, luck. indeed. You're, you're sort of obviously well known now as an investigative journalist, but what was the first piece of investigative work that you did as a freelancer do you remember what what the story was yeah i didn't do any sort of investigative work as a freelancer i was doing a lot of like features or like stuff where i would call people up i remember i have fond memories of this piece i did for uh Eurogamer back in 2011 which was like when my freelance career after i've been doing freelance for a couple of years and and I was about to get a job at Kotaku shortly afterwards um, about uh, people watching people like Day9 uh, and other people who like uh, did broadcasting, casting over games like StarCraft. Mm-hmm. That was a fun feature. I'm sure it's still online somewhere. And other stuff like that at Wired. I did a lot of one of the things that I really learned how to do at Wired was like getting on the phone with people and making sure that I was like filling every story with quotes from people and stories from people. Um, but really it was, it wasn't until a few years later that I did the first story that, um, that I would then become known for, which is a kind of behind the scenes game development stories, which is a story I did in 2015 about the making of destiny one and how that turned out to be such a debacle. And that I think to me was the first story where it was like, here's a big question that a lot of people are wondering and nobody has the answer to, can I find a way to get people that answer? And I had done some similar stories before that, but they never had, they didn't have quite the same impact as this one. And this one had such an impact that it led to my now literary agent reaching out to me like, hey, you should do a book about stories like this. Oh, and, nice. <laughs> and I wound up doing that. I mean, you've written lots of stories like this about in the in the years since about difficult developments and you know, which is which is you know true for many of these big games often have uh, difficult births. But um, yeah, we, I mean, looking back on that very first one you did with Bungie and and Destiny, what I mean, I'm asking you to be a little bit vulnerable here. I mean, what mistakes do you think you made with that, or what might you do differently if you were to approach that now with all of the experience you've got? Oh my God, a bazillion things. I, I haven't read it in a while. I actually I got a chance to redo it because I essentially I turned I transformed it. I took that story as kind of like a base for a chapter on Destiny in my first book, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, and got a chance to like redo it and and essentially just overhaul the whole thing 
Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things I probably would have done different. But like every time I look at anything I do, I'm always like, man, I wish I could do this and this differently. Like I should have. Uh, I can't believe I wrote this sentence this way. I can't believe I didn't get a, a better quote here. I can't believe. I mean, the thing that really makes me the maddest and saddest is when I find out that like some minor detail was wrong in this thing or that thing that always uh, uh, rubs me that that like gets in my craw. And I'm always like, man, like I, it's not good enough to be 99% accurate. Like you have to be a hundred percent as, as impossible of a goal that is, but that's the thing that, that bugs me most. But yeah, I mean, lots of things. I, I don't have specifics for you because I haven't read that story in a long time, but I imagine a lot of it is is I, I imagine reading through it now, there would be a lot that I would be doing differently. One thing that I've done a lot less of recently is blind quotes because at Kotaku, when I was doing a lot of these stories, I would try to, I would always want to quote people directly, even if I wasn't naming them. Bloomberg has a kind of a policy against blind quotes. We don't publish um, very, very, very rarely, I should say, but usually most of the time we're not going to quote people anonymously. And that I actually think is a pretty good habit to get into as as kind of awkward and uncomfortable because as it can feel to just be paraphrasing everything, I actually think it can make stronger stories when you're not quote, giving direct quotes to anonymous sources. So that's something I would probably look at. Maybe I wouldn't eliminate all of them, but maybe I would try to paraphrase some of them. Also, the one thing that I think um, pretty much all journalists can get better at, but certainly I can get better at and have gotten better at from my editors at Bloomberg is is uh, shortening quotes. Like anytime you quote somebody, chances are you can like lop half of it off and either paraphrase the rest or just leave it out because it's not necessary. Those are things that uh, uh, in the, the serving brevity is always uh, is always a helpful, uh, helpful exercise. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay, well, on that note, let's come to your third game, Jason. So tell us about this one. This is from 2010. Oh, man, StarCraft 2. This might be my favorite game of all time, or at least one of them, because this is my go-to game, which I think a lot of people have, like, a go-to multiplayer game. You want to unwind some stress, you want to just kind of, like, kill some time, whatever. You go to this. This is this is mine, and it has been since the beta uh, in early 2010 for StarCraft II Wings of Liberty. I've been playing StarCraft multiplayer since then. And yeah, something about it is just a rush unlike, unlike any other game for me. Um, that feeling of just like controlling this army and, and getting your your build order just right and training units while at the same time you're maneuvering around the base and harassing your opponent. And I'm actually not that great at it compared to people who are playing it hundreds and hundreds of hours. Um, my my at, at my peak, I was in the Diamond League. There's like different tiers of leagues. The Masters is the number one, which I was never in. But I but I've always been like 
decent at it. These days, most of the people who are still playing StarCraft 2 since it's, it's such an old game are um, like a decent level of play because they've been playing for a while. Not a lot of newcomers these days, but um, they still cheese a lot. And so every uh, cheesing in, in StarCraft parlance means that you are like doing some sort of strategy that an opponent won't expect. You're surprising them by like taking advantage of the, the way the game works in some way. Not necessarily unintended, it could be totally intended, but you're you're breaking the rules a little bit of fair play. Right. And so a lot of times people will try to cannon rush, which means that like they, they run into your base and throw up some cannons to try to take you out by surprise. Or like they'll they'll run all your all their zerglings at you super fast. And there's few there are a few things more satisfying in gaming than fending off a cheese successfully and being like, ha, <laughs> you tried to do this, but you could not. I have stopped you. And that is always super fun. So yeah, fantastic uh, game. And I realize I haven't described it, but I feel like most people know what StarCraft is. Most people know it. Yeah, like a real-time strategy. Aliens. Yeah. To 1v1, isn't it? Always. No, it's not always or- 1v1. But the way, if you most people play it 1v1. That's what I play okay. most of the time. Yeah. Do you ever watch, because uh, I know there's a, a, you know, a very healthy StarCraft competitive esports like you know scene are you into all of that as well there was a healthy scene i'm not so sure it's that healthy these days because uh, i think blizzard has really pared back on it pulled back on it and and stopped funding a lot of this stuff and uh yeah i mean there's all sorts of drama behind the scenes that's been happening for years but uh yes i was always into my routine uh back in back when i was freelancing uh in 2010, I think I spent an entire year doing this. Essentially, my routine was like in the morning, uh, I would make breakfast and eat it over a StarCraft 2, like watching a StarCraft 2 match before I started my day. Like that was always what I did, which is a, <laughs> nice. a good way to start the day. Right. Well, you, you mentioned your first book there from 2017, which I think was a mixture of stories that you'd already published and reported. And, you know, as you say, maybe it reworked and then also some fresh reporting. Um, what was the what was the most exciting story that you reported on for that for that book? You were trying to basically tell the story of games developments, both at big studios, but also independent indie devs as well, right? Yeah. So for Bloodsworn Pixels, so the Destiny one that was the only one that was based on old reporting. The rest was like totally fresh, oh, new. right? And new reporting that I did for the book. Um, and yeah, um, my goal was to really just tell a variety of stories. So I wanted it to be like a mix of indie and AAA and different publishers and different different types of, of game studios and really try to find um, variety. And so, yeah, I, I went out and did a bunch of them. Um, I went to Poland to talk to the the folks at CD Projekt Red about The Witcher 3. And then I went to Seattle to talk to Eric Barone, who, uh, who made... Stardew Valley, um, the, <laughs> the, the solo creator, really one of the only actual solo creators. Because usually when we <laughs> think of solo creators, they have some sort of art help or music help or something like <laughs> that, or or use someone else's engine to program the game. But in this case, he did, literally did everything himself. Well, he had wife help, as you wrote his about. His wife, yes. So his girlfriend at the time f- helped fund things by, uh, by working to pay the bills as he was making this game. Although he did take on some odd jobs during the course of development. But yes, other than his financial support from his partner, uh, he really did it all himself. But and and that was the story I think that resonated with the most yeah. people, um, because it's such a kind of rags to riches story, and it's got such a a great arc to it. But yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with all of them, and and tried to tried to add as much variety as possible. There's like the Kickstarter story, and then there's the post-launch story with Diablo three, where where we really focused on. Um, what happened in the game after it actually came out. And so 
yeah, it was fun. It was a fun book to write. Um, yeah. I'm looking at it with some nostalgia now because my new book that I'm working on is one big story instead of uh, instead of a variety of stories. And I mean, you know how what a bear these books are, and you've done both kinds of books, the anthology style and the the full story. Oh my god, you'll have to give me some tips because. The anthology is like, oh my god, this is so easy. I can just write a bunch of like mega articles and turn them into right. a book. And this is like, oh my god, it has to be, it has to be one <laughs> big story with characters and arcs. And oh, what am I, what am I doing here? And I can't just make things up. What? <laughs> why? Why can't I do that? Can you can you say what the new book is about? Yeah, are you ready to talk about that? No, not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Not yet. <laughs> you, you sound like a game developer. <laughs> no, it's just a, like, yeah, I don't know. It's it's the type of thing. It's it's a little bit, yeah, I don't know. I I just can't can't talk about it yet for reasons. No, it's it's absolutely that's that's fair enough. I just I think, think it's it'll funny. be clear when I announce what it's about. I think it'll be clear like why I haven't okay. been able to talk about it for oh, what it's worth. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, no worries at all. Right, well, tell me about moving to Bloomberg. Um, you know, you were Kotaku for a while. Kotaku had some you know, tough times because of its parent company, Gorka, which was, you know, very in a very high profile lawsuit that ruined <laughs> ruined the people <laughs> involved, right? Sure did. Yeah. What at what point were you like, I gotta get out of here? Uh fun fact, I remember I was in Irvine, California. I think I was doing some reporting for my first book in the summer of twenty sixteen and I was sitting at my hotel. I think I had a little break, so I was like sitting out at the pool in Irvine. It was gorgeous out. And I have my laptop and suddenly I get a call from Stephen Totillo, my my boss at the time. He's like, you should get on this Zoom call. And it's a Zoom call where it's like, yeah, so we're we're filing for bankruptcy and we're going to be sold. It was fun times all around. Yeah, I mean, without getting into all of the drama, um, I had a really uh, great time at Kotaku. Um, obviously, there are ups and downs to any job. But in general, I really enjoyed the people I worked with. I really enjoyed my boss. I really enjoyed writing for a website that could let that would let me like in one day publish a big investigative feature and the next day publish some like nonsense jokes uh that maybe only i laugh at and i'm still enjoying publishing like uh like a ranking of review scores where i like rank them in order and it's like number one seven out of ten number two two out of ten like so on and yeah i really enjoyed it and then we got shuffled around we were owned by univision for a few years which was like fine not great but fine but then when the private equity company Great Hill bought us in 2019, uh, they installed this new CEO and things got really bad really, really quickly. Um, well, how so? Well, I mean, he just was like, he came in with this kind of old school Forbes uh, mentality. And by Forbes, I mean, not like the presti- prestigious magazine, but like the new blog spam uh, era of the early 2000s. Like he was very much about like, turning everything into slideshows and stuff like that. And it was very clear that he just did not give one iota of crap about journalism and reporting. And uh, I think it was very frustrating to work for him. And then really things came to a head when there was a whole big drama that essentially, essentially he killed Deadspin and drove their whole staff to quit. And mm-hmm. it became yes. clear to me and a lot of my colleagues that like we it was untenable to stay there. Um, and so I started looking for a new job in the next few months after that and started talking to a bunch of different people, figuring things out. Then the pandemic hit at the same time, which was crazy timing. But before the pandemic even started or like around the time it was starting, I accepted that job with Bloomberg, which was cool. I was like deciding I was trying to decide between another game site or Bloomberg and ultimately was like, you know, 
another game site would be cool and it'd be fun to have this like big audience again of gamers and, and reach lots of people and work with a team of game of other games editors and stuff but um Bloomberg feels like a totally new challenge and I was ready for something brand new after nice. eight years at Kotaku I didn't really want to be doing more of the same and yeah so far it's been great I've really enjoyed being part of this organization in this newsroom it's like incredibly like I'm always blown away I was at a team dinner the other night and it's like oh, this person to my left wrote a book about something else, uh, something, and then this person wrote a book about something else. And, oh, yeah, I'm reading that person's book. And, oh, yeah, this person is publishing this incredible feature about Elon Musk or whatever. And, yeah, it's been really, really cool to be part of that team and has a really good editors, which is also very useful to learn from. Yes. Good good editors and, and well-funded is my sense as well. With Well-funded, with, that it, is helpful. It, it, it feels secure in a way that not everywhere does, right? Yes, so. that is a big boon. That is that is beneficial <laughs> for sure. Right, let's come to your fourth game then, uh, then Jason. Tell us about this one from 2018. My next game is Return of the Obra Din. Have you noticed that the music in this game sounds a little bit like the music in Succession? That's a, a fun, a fun little yes. observation that I that I had. Um, so this game, this kind of is representative of a certain genre that I truly love, which is puzzle games and games that make you think. And this game especially just feels like one big logic puzzle in a way that just totally titillated me. Um, it was just such an enjoyable experience going through this thing with a little notebook on my desk, played through it all over the course of a couple of days. This was 2018, so this was before I had my first kid, so it was another one of those, like, hey, I can actually spend a weekend playing a game, and that was very fun. But yeah, no, this game is, is really incredible. It's essentially the premise is you're on this, you, it is set in the uh, 1800s, and you are a claims adjuster for this ship that has uh, been abandoned, and, and you just row up to it, and you have to figure out what happened here, and you do that by diving into um, people's lives using, using this. You, basically, there are a bunch of dead bodies on the ship, and you have this compass that can let you see the moments before their death. And you have to go around, and you have to figure out these uh, 60-something passengers on this ship, not just passengers, but also crewmates and, and captains and stuff, admirals. And you have to uh, figure out who everybody is and how they died and who killed them. And <laughs> all of the, as, as, as it unfolds, you find out that there was a, a whole lot of crazy stuff, shenanigans happened on this <laughs> ship. Uh, and it's extremely enjoyable to go through what essentially proves to be like one of those big logic puzzles like you would do in the SATs or something. Well, that's, or whatever the British equivalent of the SATs is, uh, <laughs> where it's like, um, Jane is sitting next to Maggie, but Maggie is two seats away from Charlie. And right. Yeah. Only yeah. one of them is wearing a blue hat. And it's one of those big, big logic grids, except it's 60 people. So it's a really cool just experience to go through it. I've never played anything like it until, well, actually, that's not true. I hadn't played anything like it then. Since then, I've also played The Case of the Golden Idol, which is also yes. very, very similar and up there and um, just another high quality kind of puzzle investigation 
game. But really what's special about both of those games is they really rely on you as a player to think and they don't hold your hand too much and they they trust you to use your intuition and figure out what's going on. And sometimes there's some some wrinkles and some snags along the way, but like there's never a little Atreus coming up to you and being like, Hey, have you decided have you have you thought about checking over there? And there's never that whole like (laughs) triple a mentality of like everyone needs to finish this game and it's like no i mean uh maybe it allows you to make loads of mistakes as well as you fill in those names you can get them all wrong and get yourself in a terrible mess can't you yeah and you can also brute force it if you want by like uh, because because it'll tell you um every three it'll tell you if you're right and so sometimes you have to do a little bit of guessing and checking if you want trial and error and yeah, just an incredible experience. I just really, really enjoyed it. Um, it's one of the most memorable games, but it's up there. I mean, there are a lot of games in that ca- sort of category that I just have loved, especially recently games like Outer Wilds and Baba is You and other sort of like, this mm-hmm. game is actually going to challenge your brain in a way that you haven't felt in a long time. And mm-hmm. I always just enjoy the hell out of those experiences. I just wish Professor Layton, uh, I guess it's coming back soon. Uh, it's been a while, but I'm looking forward to that coming back. And, yeah. and then there's some more brain teasers uh, on race. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, speaking of brain teasers, let's. Uh, I'm interested to talk to you about the story with Activision Blizzard. We're going to have to tread carefully with this conversation. <laughs> but um, No, please. Yeah, hit me. There was a, there was a big Wall Street Journal... Uh, was it Wall Street Journal report in 2021? Uh-huh. I'm going to read out the headline so that it's their words. It said, Activision CEO Bobby Kotick knew for years about sexual misconduct allegations at video game Giant. And uh, it's quite a salacious story. Lots of interesting details, including that Kotick had threatened allegedly to have his assistant killed and all sorts of things, which he has survived and continues to be the CEO of that company. But, um, you know, at the time you you came out and said that you had been, you know, you had some of the details from that story already, but, uh, and in fact had had them for some time, but you hadn't felt that you had the reporting to stand up. You know, I think for people who don't work as journalists, they might not quite understand what you mean by that. So yeah, maybe, you know, could you just explain what did you have and what did you need? Yeah, so, uh, so the context here is actually a little bit different. So, so what happened was, a few months before the Wall Street Journal article came out, California's government sued Activision Blizzard, alleging a culture of sexual misconduct and harassment and discrimination. Yes. And so I had a Twitter thread where the first tweet I tweeted the details of the lawsuit. The second tweet I tweeted Activision Blizzard's immediate response, which was a uh, statement from them saying this lawsuit is garbage. And this is me paraphrasing. I'm not quoting, but the lawsuit is gar- garbage. It does not represent reality. And then the third tweet, and this is the one that's been taken out of context by a fair number of people spurred on by Gamer Gators, of course. But this third tweet was what I said, which was, truth is, I've heard several stories about uh, sexual, like that, that sort of thing, several stories like this at Activision Blizzard over the years. And the purpose of saying, truth is, I've heard this is because despite what Activision Blizzard was saying, I was saying, actually, there is some merit to this, despite this PR statement. And because it's Twitter, because it's easy to take things out of context, a bunch of people started taking that out of context to mean that I knew about the allegations and had just been sitting on them, which was, of course, completely untrue. (laughs) And so the reality was I had heard a couple of rumblings specifically around a guy named Ben Kilgore, who was Blizzard's CTO and was unceremoniously fired in the summer of 2018. 
Um, and it was kind of a weird firing. And I started hearing rumblings like, hey, you should look into this. This guy got fired for for potential like lurid reasons, potential misconduct reasons. And I started looking into it and I found that people were really clamming up. And what I found out later was that those people were clamming up because they've been advised not to talk to anybody because of the ongoing lawsuit that was <laughs> happening then. And then I started hearing bits and pieces about how there was a lawsuit going on. Couldn't get many more details. Couldn't get the lawyers to talk to me. Everybody was kind of hush hush because of this active litigation. Um, and then so that was the extent of what I had heard and what I had tried to look into. And then I was still kind of I had it on the back burner. It's one of those things when you're a reporter, you often have a lot of things on the back burner. Yep. Oftentimes you're waiting for the one thing that will really be the trigger for it. Sometimes it's someone coming to you. Sometimes it's something going public and then you can kind of go from there. A lot of times what happens in a story about harassment and a story about like systemic issues is that when other when when a lot of a lot of people might have a similar story but they might feel like they're alone and may not want to talk about it until there's the, the floodgates start opening up and it becomes clear like oh it's not just me there is this kind of ongoing situation where it's actually widespread and it's systemic and now i feel more comfortable talking about my own experiences there so I mean, that's literally the me too movement. exactly exactly <laughs> me, and so, me as well right so what happened was in that same tweet that people keep taking out of context um, and again, this is all months before the Wall Street Journal thing. The Wall Street Journal was an excellent report that kind of elaborated on this stuff. But actually, in that same tweet, I had said, if you have a story to share, come to me. And a lot of people came to me. And then we wound up publishing our own story on Bloomberg a few weeks after the lawsuit hit. That was like, this is our big investigation into this based on our own conversations with dozens of of people who have worked at Activision Blizzard over the years. So that was kind of the sequence of events. And then, yeah, the Wall Street Journal article came later and then lots of other stuff uh, including the Microsoft acquisition or potential acquisition, all that happened later. But yeah, that one tweet uh, taken out of context, it just has been completely weaponized and and uh, used in this this pretty uh, uh, heinous Dis- way. Disingenuous, I isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think especially when you really when you strip it away from the previous tweet, then it looks different than when it's part of this thread the way it was intended to be. Of so course, yeah. I think that uh, it's like all things on Twitter. It's just uh, awfulness abounds. Mm. I mean, uh, yeah, I'd like to ask you about that because you, I mean, on Twitter, you have the best part of half a million followers. You know, when you reach an audience of that kind of size, you know, any person who's vaguely in the in the public spotlight, you know, let alone at that scale, has to take some kind of protective measures for their own sanity. You've got, you know, horrible messages coming into your phone in your pocket. That just feels like such a transgression, like in some ways, right? How do you navigate that distinction between being a, you know, public figure and also having your own private life? That's a great question. I'll I'll tell you when I find out the answer to that question. I still don't know, especially, I mean, my relationship with Twitter has always been kind of funky and, and complicated and has gotten even more so over the last year as Twitter has become this like totally un, unpleasant place to be. And I think most people who use it have developed a more complicated relationship with it recently. Um, and it's also just become like harder to use. It's just more broken and busted and the replies are all full of full of like all the all the worst possible people are just like skyrocketing in the top of people's replies. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have a good answer to that question, but I have been very sad about the way that Twitter has been destroyed because I've found that it's I've had a very um, 
I've met a lot of, uh, I've had a lot of good personal and professional relationships and interactions come out of Twitter. And I've always enjoyed kind of being able to reach a large audience on Twitter and being able to, for all of, all of the all of the flack that I have to deal with and the thick skin that I've had to grow over the years, um, it is still a good place to be like, hey, come read my stuff, like to have a platform for work and books and whatever else, uh, podcast stuff and whatever else is worth sharing. So um, it's always been worth it for me, uh, although that may change now that it's become this kind of like total wasteland under under its new ownership have you ever had times where you've deleted the app from your phone because it's been too much um no uh what i try to do is so i i use it way more on the browser than i do on the phone so what i try to do when i'm in book writing mode or i need to get stuff done is like i'll um open a new uh like google chrome window that doesn't have twitter on it or i'll like log out of twitter Although these days you can't even log out of Twitter without it breaking. So I'm like afraid if I log out of Twitter, it won't, won't let me log back in. <laughs> Never get back in. But, uh, but that's what I've done in the past just to avoid the distraction. Um, although recently I've gotten, I've, I've been able to like keep a lot of distance from Twitter just because it's gotten so unpleasant to use that I've been like, like weaning myself off of it. Um, using Reddit a lot more these days, which is a lot more pleasant and a lot more informative and interesting. Yeah, it's more of a distraction uh, or, or it, it, it's when I have to keep off of it, it's more because of a distraction than like mental health reasons. Um, because okay. something that I'll often do on Twitter for mental health reasons is I'll either, well, I'll always block people indiscriminately. Um, but I also will always, um, just delete tweets if I don't feel like dealing with like people responding to them anymore. That's something that I, I do fairly frequently. Um, even if it's like something that I'm, I'm don't regret or anything like it's something I'm perfectly happy with the message it's just like I don't feel like dealing with people responding to it or taking it out of context or whatever so I'll just leave. turn the hose off mm-hmm. yeah. exactly <laughs> all right let's come to your fifth and your final game then Jason tell us about this one yeah so my final game is the legend of Zelda tears of the kingdom I know I mentioned recency bias of Baldur's Game 3, but I think we have enough distance from this one that I can pretty definitively say that it is one of the greatest games ever made. Perhaps <laughs> the best game that I've ever played in my life. I don't know. I'm, I'm still, <laughs> still sitting on that particular hot take. 
many people agree that Breath of the Wild was really this just kind of feat, this game where you could really just like head off in any direction and explore. It really just kind of uh, the best way that I've heard it described is that it took that the the promise of the original Zelda and then Ocarina of Time of exploring this vast world and finally delivered on it. Here is this world. You can actually explore every inch. You see something in the distance, you can go there and walk in any direction. The game will say yes to everything that you want. Anything you want to do in this game, it will say yes to. <laughs> Except for one thing, which is if you try to like cross across the invisible boundaries that like actually make up the map. Like if you head all the way to the west, it'll be like you cannot go here. So that's <laughs> one one illusion breaker. But anyway, um, the fact that you play Tears of the Kingdom and you're like, man, I can never play Breath of the Wild again because this game makes that feel like legitimately like a rough draft is really just astounding that's true and the way yeah. that tears of the kingdom takes that exploration and then adds on top of it all these new layers that make combat and traversal just exponentially more interesting i think is really just so impressive and the way that they've added these really just four new abilities that completely transform the way everything works um, it's just just phenomenal, and I just have I, I think I'm at like 150 hours of the game, and I will probably play it many more, especially if there's ever DLC. Yeah, I mean, I just I I can't remember enjoying a game and its possibilities quite as much as I have Tears of the Kingdom. Um, yeah, just a, a phenomenal achievement. It is extraordinary. Yeah, I can't believe like how like unwearied I am by it, even though there's so much to do. There's so much. Uh, it's not like so often in open world games. I just feel like ah, oh, I've just got so many jobs. Yep, <laughs> to tick off. Maybe I'll just turn the game off and not do them. But I don't feel that with this game. I just keep love loving going into it. It's really amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I think what it does, and the reason that you feel that way, is because it takes like the the vastness, the um, that feeling of like, wow, I'm exploring this world, and there's so much to do, and it's it's really just this this feast for the sights and uh, uh, like just this, I don't know, this rush for your, the whatever part of your brain loves to explore, whatever adventure, like human nature we have, uh, the the thing that makes us want to like explore the seas and go to space or whatever that, that human explorers feeling, it takes that. And then on top of that, it adds this like moment to moment fun that Nintendo is so good at of like making individual actions feel so good and that is something that i think breath of the wild really didn't have quite as much of and every other open world game like you play horizon zero dawn or whatever forbidden west and it's like wow this is gorgeous this is a cool world i want to explore this but like walking around and riding around and shooting enemies gets kind of old after a while it's all very seamy same with assassin's creed uh, Valhalla or any of these other games that present these incredible detailed meticulously crafted worlds they don't also have that feeling of like, wow, this Nintendo moment to moment, every single moment is a joy, that sort of feeling, which Tears of the Kingdom gives you, whether you're like fusing items to your weapons and just experimenting with a billion different possibilities to see how you can take out enemies, or you're just building Zonai devices so you can explore in a more fun way, or you're launching into the air and then just like using the skies to to float around and like, or to, to glide around in different, like, areas. And, yeah, I mean, it's just, it just combines, it's got the best of both worlds. The mm. the Ubisoft open worlds uh, vastness with the Nintendo charm. And I think that's what makes it so special. Right, Jason, let's look at your console. So we've got Final Fantasy VI, Baldur's Gate 2, Starcraft 2, 
Return of the Obra Dinn, and The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Very fine console. How are you feeling about that? Yeah, it's a good console. I think Baldur's Gate 3 might replace Baldur's Gate 2 at some point, but other than that, I'm pretty I'm pretty chill with that console. Yeah, something for every mood there, I think. Uh-huh, uh-huh. If only Tears of the Kingdom would come to PC, we could really, we could just get this whole thing running on a Steam Deck. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, yeah, so what would you, we need a name to market this to the world. What would you like to call it? I think we're going to call it the Press Sneak Box. Very good. Uh, so yeah, we'll let, we won't get into what that's a reference to, but yeah. <laughs> that's Well, yeah, well, we'll leave it at that. Very nice. Okay, brilliant. Well, just before I let you go, well, we're going to go and do some re- listener questions in a minute, but just before I ask that, outlets, so, you know, sometimes ask their journalists to provide some evidence of the real world impact that their reporting has had. Like, I guess, you know, sometimes when a, when an outlet's going to try and get an award or something like that, they want some examples. You, you've... It, uh, reported extensively on abuses and poor working conditions in the games industry. Have you have you seen any evidence that any of that is changing, perhaps due to your own work or just general, uh, you know, change in attitudes from the public, uh, perhaps led by your reporting? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen change. I don't think, I, like, I, I don't take much credit for that because I think a lot of the credit belongs to workers who are speaking out, whether they're speaking out to the press or more commonly speaking out internally. And I think that like, if anything has really, really led to a sea change, it's um, social media and the fact that people are feeling more and more empowered these days to like call out their bosses or like not put up with stuff that they might've put up with a few years ago. <laughs> really, the the uh, there has been a lot of sweeping change in recent years, especially surrounding crunch and overtime and the way that people handle that. Um, I think that it's like it, it is not as accepted as it once was that you will be working for three months, like nights and weekends to finish your game. Like people just mm. won't put up with that sort of thing anymore, uh, uh, especially at big companies that know better and can do better, can afford to do better. Yes. But yeah, I mean, it's it's slow, but yeah, definitely, definitely has changed. Um, and I really think I think that's that's more about workers taking power and control over their careers and their livelihoods than it is about any sort of press thing. I think the press, I think if if there's anything that I will take credit for, and by take credit, I mean, really, again, the credit goes to people who have spoken to me over the years, because without them, like this sort of thing wouldn't be possible. But if there is something that I, I would take some credit for, it's improving the level of discourse in uh, in a pretty widespread way. And that like, it's, I don't, I very rare. It's very rare to see people like, at least from where I what, what I've seen. I I haven't seen people calling game developers lazy without being called out for it. And a lot of times, <laughs> reading Reddit or Twitter, I'll see people being like, "Oh, you think game developers are lazy? Like, go read Jason Schreier's <laughs> Bloodstone Pixels or Press Reset." And that that I take a lot of pride in is like being able to to elevate the level of discourse when it comes to game making uh, unfortunately it's still pretty low the bar is still pretty low for that stuff but uh but but any and any any small changes i can bring to the table uh make me happy yeah i think you move the needle jason you can uh, you can definitely take credit for that so <laughs> thank you sir i mean i appreciate that well that thank you for thank you for this i really appreciate it and thanks for being so open and i'm sure people will have learned lots about your process and the way you arrive at the decisions that you do. So thank you, Jason. Of course. Thank you, Simon. This has been a treat.
There we have it, Jason Schreier, everyone. Thank you so much to Jason for, for coming on my perfect console. I was so glad to have him, to have the opportunity to chat to him, to hear about his his work, his career, his attitudes, uh, the way he goes about his reporting, his ethical standards, uh, and just all of that stuff. What great stuff. If you are in any way interested in journalism or in the way in which the video game industry is reported on, then I hope you really enjoyed that chat. Um, yeah, Jason's work is uh, easy to find, but he's got a personal website. Maybe you start there, jasonschreier.com. And uh, if you want to read his work at Bloomberg, uh, then you just search Jason Schreier and Bloomberg and it will come up with his author page on there and you can read all of his most recent reporting on the games industry. Uh, he he posts, uh, st- reported stories very, uh, very regularly. And yeah, look back at uh, Jason's reporting there. He's also on a, on a lighter note away from that investigative stuff. He's one of the three hosts of the Triple Click podcast, a very, very popular American video games podcast, which Jason hosts alongside Kirk Hamilton and Maddie Myers. I believe they're both Kotaku alumni and, um, you know, lovely, lovely people, all three of them. And it's a good podcast. Uh, so go along and listen to that if you would like some more Jason content. And of course, yeah, as we discussed on there, he's he's quite active on Twitter. You'll be able to find him there. He's got a huge, huge following. And um, yeah, <laughs> Uh, I don't envy him that in many ways because, you know, Jason puts himself in the firing line a lot. Uh, he is sometimes viewed as a divisive figure because of that. But uh, I think that's really just because of the scale of audience he's addressing. If you work in the games industry and have tips for uh, stories that you think should be more widely lo- known, then you can contact Jason on Secure Channels and talk to him about that. Although, of course... As he explained in that chat, that's not a route to exercise personal grudges or anything like that. It's really to try and expose uh, um, stories that are in the public interest. So, yeah, if you have one of those, get in contact. I'm sure Jason would love to hear from you. Okay, two podcast matters. We have just completed the first round of the My Perfect Console of the Year voting Uh, Very exciting. So 52 of the previous guests of the show have now been cut down uh, to fewer than that. It's not quite half because of the way that the maths works. But um, yeah, if you're interested in seeing how that's coming along, basically it's a large knockout competition where all of my previous guests from this, the first year of My Perfect Console, are going head to head in little randomly grouped matchups against each other. And they're going to get whittled down and whittled down until we can declare the My Perfect Console of the year 2023. Um, if you go to the website challenge.com, so that's C-H-A-L-L-O-N-G-E, challenge.com forward slash M-P-C, M-P-C, as in My Perfect Console, 2023. So challenge.com forward slash M-P-C, 2023. You'll be able to see the current rankings. So, for example, Ian Cook's console has beaten John Josh Wardle's. So Ian has gone through to round two where he faces off against Ashley Birch, for example. Uh, Marie Leconte beat Eric Wolpaw from 
uh, one of the writers of Portal, and she is now in a face-off against Peter Molyneux uh, because Peter Molyneux beat the comedian Glenn Moore. So anyway, we've done the first round and we're through to the second round. So this week, uh, you are free to vote on who you would like to go through to round three. So there are, I think, 16 face-offs. And if you'd like to vote on those, the easiest way is to head to patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole. There will be a pinned post at the top that takes you to directly to a Google form. It will take you all of 60 seconds to just whiz down, place your votes. You can only vote once, uh, but all of the votes will be counted. And uh, that would be great. Get involved. Um, yeah, the first three rounds are open to everyone. And then the final three rounds of the tournament will only be open to my perfect console supporters. If you want to become a supporter, you just go to the same address, patreon.com forward slash my perfect console and become a supporter there. It would be lovely to have you. Great community there. Lots of bonus things for you, not least being able to crown the console of the year, which we will be announcing just before the end of the year so that's really the main news at the moment please come and get involved in the tournament uh, if you want to follow along for other updates then we are on twitter uh, or x.com we'll call it twitter because you know uh, that's twitter.com forward slash my perfect console with the o's removed also on instagram if you want to follow on there but uh, yeah probably patreon is the best place to get your news and to the most comprehensive news and up-to-date stuff. So, yeah, please do that. Right, we are coming into the final stretch of guests, aren't we? Next week, we've got Mike Rose. Mike is a former journalist who was really instrumental in covering the indie game scene uh, in the early days of the indie game scene. So around the time of Braid and world of goo and all those sort of classic titles plants vs zombies peggle if you remember that little era you probably uh, read mike's work he was one of the key voices in elevating some of those indie developers uh, and then more recently he has moved into the world of indie game publishing he owns the publisher no more robots whose games you will likely have played probably their most famous title is descenders which is never far outside the top 20 games on Xbox and PlayStation and, and Steam as well. It's uh, he sold millions and millions of copies. So he's been very successful with what he's doing there. Mike's a great guy and also extremely outspoken and not afraid to reveal industry secrets and how much who's getting paid for what games and all that kind of thing. So uh, yeah, you're in for a treat with that one. And then we'll be heading into our very final stretch of guests leading up to Christmas. And then we'll be doing a couple of special shows and uh, then crowning the console of the year. That's the plan. I hope that's okay with you all. Uh, you can drop me a line at myperfectconsole at gmail.com. Please do write in. It's lovely to hear from you. Send your suggestions for guests. We're, we're currently booking guests for the new year. Um, and uh, we've got a few recorded and lined up and um, yeah it would be it'd be just lovely to hear from you so get, drop us a line tell us about any games you're making or any creative projects you've got like that maybe I'll try to give them a shout out on here okay I'll be back again next week with Mike Rose with his five game choices and one more perfect console till then have a great week
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.